Welcome to the Northridge Church Podcast, a weekly rewind of Sunday's talk. Let me add my welcome to you today. Glad you are here. Are you excited to be here today? That's good. I'm excited to be here today. I'm excited because we're back in the book of Acts. I, uh, I have absolutely loved uh, the fact that we have a trilogy, Dave. It's like the, uh, the old Star Wars trilogy, right? I said Star Wars. He says Lord of the Rings. I, I, I don't, I'm confused now. <laughs> now, the Acts series is much cooler than any Star Wars series that we could, we could teach on. So, uh, uh, excited about that. We're going to be in Acts 17 today, and we're not going to, by any means, try to catch you up the first uh, 16 chapters of Acts. If you uh, have not had a chance to, uh, to listen to any of our, our Volume 1, Volume 2 series, you can actually go to our website under our messages, and you can uh, look up those podcasts uh, right there, and you can listen to every single uh, message under, under Acts Volume 1 and Acts Volume 2. So I encourage you to do that if you uh, uh, want to or choose to. So, so last week, a friend of Evan's uh, Sally, she she called me and she said, "Hey, I'm doing a uh, I'm doing a class paper and I need someone to interview and and want to know if you'd be willing to uh, to be my interviewee." And I said, "Well, okay, that's that's great. What are we what are we going to be talking about, Sally?" And she said, "Death, death." She said, "I'm an anthropology major and and I'm doing a paper on death and how different people look at death." And and then she said, "Well, she said, you know, you're a pastor and and you're probably the only one I know that's really had any experience with death." And I went, "Well." I appreciate that. I like to think that I have some experience with giving life as well. But yes, Sally, I can talk to you a little bit about death. And so uh, she came over and, and to the house, and, and Tammy fixed a, a nice meal that any college student would love to have. And, um, and we sat and we talked, and, and she, we went through 10 or so questions. And, and, and we talked about uh, death, and we talked about uh, you know, my experiences and dealing with that and, and with helping people through that. And we talked about funerals, and we talked about ministering to families and in those times of crisis and how sometimes that's a huge blessing, and sometimes there's... there's there's difficulties with just all the different family dynamics that are involved. And, and then she asked me what I believed uh, occurred when people die. And so I had a chance to, to tell her that, which was a really a cool opportunity for me. And then she asked me a question. I don't necessarily, it was kind of the same question, but it was worded a little bit differently. And I don't think it necessarily caught me off guard, but it just kind of made me stop and think a minute. And it, it kind of made me stop and think and kind of process what I wanted to say. And she asked, she said, hey, then last question, she said, what would you say to someone who's not a believer who's not a Christian like you, but was looking for answers about what happens after you die? That's a, that's a pretty tough question, really. That's something you kind of have to, you don't just get asked every single day. Have you ever had that opportunity? Have you ever had an opportunity to engage in someone with that type of a question? Maybe it wasn't life or death, but maybe it was a question like, what do you believe? I mean, what, what do you actually believe as, as a Christian? What is it that you believe? And I think that most of us, our hands kind of start getting a little bit sweaty when we start having to think about engaging in those kind of conversations. Maybe we cringe a little bit because there's all kinds of things that start rushing through our mind of how to explain what we believe. And, 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 and you know, sometimes I just don't feel competent enough in, in, in the Bible to, to be able to answer those questions. What if they ask me something that I just can't quite explain because, you know, something like from Second Chronicles, they pull some weird scripture out and I can't explain it, right? Or, or maybe we kind of have this fear of rejection. Like what if, what if what I say to them kind of turns them off from me and our friendship? 
relationship. And, and that's really a, a big deal because you know what? We don't like to be labeled. I mean, it doesn't matter who we are. None of us like to be labeled, right? Uh, none of us like to be kind of rejected and that kind of... And so we get a little nervous when we have to kind of engage in those conversations. Well, Paul, in Acts 17, gets to have a conversation with a group of people who were not believers. In fact, he had a, he had, he had a conversation with a group of philosophers, People who just sat around all day and they just philosophized about life and they just kind of pondered the things of life and, and the meanings of life and, and they debated over that just all day long. Well, Paul finds himself right smack dab in the middle of a conversation with people who don't believe and are asking, what do you believe? What do you believe? And so it's interesting. And if you're, if you're a Christ follower today, I really ask that you just pay, pay very close attention today to what Paul says and how he engages in the conversation with these non-believers. It's, it's really interesting because these people had no idea. They had no clue about, spirit, about, about uh, Christianity. They had no clue about this God that Paul was going to begin to explain to them. They, they, didn't, they didn't have any clue about it. So it was a very, very new idea to them. They were clueless with this. And so pay attention to how Paul engages these individuals. And then you know what? If you're not a believer today, if you're online with us, you're not a believer. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you know, my hope and my prayer is that you're able to be engaged today just where you're at and just in the questions that you have about God and Jesus and who he is. So if you would, you can go ahead and, and um, turn in your copy of the scripture to Acts chapter 17. And we're going to be picking up in verse 16. And while you're turning there, I'm going to just kind of catch you up to speed as what's kind of happened in the first part of, of chapter 17. So, so basically, Paul and Silas have gone to Thessalonica. Timothy is no longer with them. And they've gone into Thessalonica. And he, Paul has gone into the synagogue, and he begins to teach about God. He begins to teach and preach about Jesus and God. And so some of the Jews and some of the God-fearing Greeks, and when it says God-fearing Greeks, anytime we hear that in these passages, it means basically these are Greeks that were spiritual. They believed in a, in a God, but they necessarily didn't necessarily believe in Jesus, or maybe they'd been converted into Judaism. So there was a group of, of, of people that, that decided they wanted to follow Paul and Silas in their ministry, and they became believers. Well, this made a group of, the, of another group of them very angry. And so what they did is they went out into the marketplace, and they gathered a bunch of people around, and they started a riot, and they started looking for Paul and Silas. And so as this riot ensued and it kind of grew, they went to this guy's house named Jason. Didn't know Jason was a biblical name, did you? Jason's in the Bible. So they go to this guy named Jason's house and they're looking for Paul and Silas because they had been staying there. Well, when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers out and they brought them before the city council and they started accusing them of blasphemy. And they said, these guys are teaching about a king other than Caesar. They're talking about this king named Jesus. Well, the city officials really didn't know what to do with him, so they kind of held him overnight, and they allowed him to post bond, and they went home. Well, in the meantime, Paul and, and Silas kind of traveled down to another little town called Berea, and there they meet Timothy. So they're, the three of them are back together again. Well, Paul does what he did in Thessalonica. He goes into the synagogues and into the marketplaces and starts teaching about Jesus again. And again, it says that there were a few people that came and wanted to join their ministry. And they were excited about that. And they, and they, and they, they joined it and they became Christ followers. Well, news kind of traveled fast to those people in Thessalonica. Well, they came down and they started causing trouble in Berea. And so at that point, they decided to send Paul to Athens. And, and, and uh, uh, Timothy and Silas decided they would stay, stay back and that they would catch up with him later in Athens. And so that's where we pick up in verse 16 of uh, chapter 17. And it says, 
It says this, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, in them, meaning Timothy and Silas, while he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, he found himself in the synagogue again, with both Jews and, with both Jews and, Greek, and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul goes to Athens. Athens is the same Athens as it would be if we visited today. But however, when, when it was Athens in Paul's day, it was considered kind of the intellectual capital of the world. I mean, you would have found some of the most intelligent minds, some of the greatest philosophers, some of the greatest poets in Athens. And not only that, you would have seen all kinds of altars and statues and temples made to all kinds of different gods. And that's why Paul says he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols, okay? And then it goes on, it says, a group of uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So Epicurean philosophers, they were kind of interesting people. They were kind of like pleasure above everything else in life type philosophers. They were kind of like, you know what? Um, you know, we're going to think about it and we're going to philosophize about it. But if we can't figure it out, let's just have another glass of wine and let's just be happy about it, right? Now, Stoic philosophers were kind of the opposite. They were very uh, rigid in their thinking. They were very disciplined in their thinking. They tried to suppress all kinds of pleasure in their life. And they decided that, you know, they, they had the kind of the mindset that give me enough time and we will figure it out. I think my dad was a Stoic philosopher. I'm just, I'm just, just saying, just, you didn't grow up with me, but I'm thinking my dad was a Stoic philosopher. My sister may have been one too. I'm not sure. Don't know what that says about me, but anyway. So, <laughs> so they have these, these two different types of philosophers, and they're saying, what's he saying? This babbler, what's he saying? Because they, they had never heard this kind of message that Paul was teaching. And they say he's advocating for a, a foreign god. Now, that was a big deal in Athens because there was all kinds of gods, more gods than they could even recognize or even pay attention to. But to introduce a new god, that was a big deal. That was a very, very big deal. And you had to have permission for that to introduce a new God. And it says that they were advocating that, he see, that he's advocating foreign gods. And it says this, it says, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so it says, they took him and brought him to the meeting place, the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are preaching. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. So where they took him is to this place called the Areopagus, and there's a picture of that. And you can actually visit that today. I, st I think you can still visit that even today. And what the Areopagus was, it was a place where they would kind of bring people. And it was, it was actually some fundamental courts would occur there. They would have murder trials there. They would have uh, arson trials there. And they would also discuss religious matters there, which is why they brought Paul there. And so what would happen is they would bring the city council, the elders of the city, all these philosophers and all these, these intellectual thinkers. They would all gather there to hear what Paul had to say. And it was almost kind of like they were interviewing Paul. It was kind of like, hey, you know what? You're here. We know you're talking about some strange things, some strange ideas we've never heard before. So here you go. Make your case. Let's hear what you got to say. All right. How do you think Paul interviews? I think he interviews pretty well. And so it says, then Paul stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I have walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So Paul stands up and he says, listen, I see you're religious. I see all these things all over Athens that you worship. And then I come to this thing and it says the unknown God. Now, obviously you're religious people. You worship things. But he says you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. He wasn't saying you're stupid because these were intelligent people. He was saying, listen, you, you don't even understand truly what you really worship. Because you have this unknown God here. This is kind of, you don't even know what you're worshiping. See, an unknown God, that altar, go ahead and pick a picture of that up there. That's kind of what it would look like. Basically, it was kind of there. It was kind of a just-in-case altar. I mean, they were so fearful of gods in that day and time. They were so fearful that they might miss one, that one might show up and they'd forgot to, to build an altar to it or a temple, that they'd be punished for it. And so they just kind of built this one and kind of set here over here. And it's say, hey, this is just in case another God shows up. And so Paul says, listen, you don't even understand and truly understand what you're worshiping. You're religious, but you don't know everything. You, you don't even know what it is that you think you know. All right. And then he gets real. He goes, this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. In verse 24. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands and he, as if he needs anything. In other words, listen, the God I'm telling you about, he, you can't fit him in a temple. that You can put all your temples together. You can put all your altars together. The God I'm talking to you about, he can't fit in any of them. He is bigger than that. And he doesn't need your gold. He doesn't need your silver. He doesn't need your incense. He doesn't need everything it is that you want to give to all your, your gods. He doesn't need anything given by human hands. Rather, he says, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then he does something really interesting. There's little quotation marks. I don't know if you can see that up there. There's little quotation marks beginning at verse 28. He actually takes time. He quotes one of their poets. He actually quotes one of the, a Greek philosopher, a poet that they knew, and he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In other words, listen, you guys got some of it going on. You got some of it right, but you still don't know it all. Your poets kind of had the right idea, but they still just don't truly understand it. And then he continues. He says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or, or, or skill. In other words, there's not an image, there's not anything that you could create that would, that would take on the identity of this grand and this glorious God that I'm talking to you about. You can't create something that looks like this. In the past, he said, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. That man, obviously, he's talking about is Jesus there. Um, he, will, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
It says, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. At that, he walks away off the Areopagus. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. So what do we learn from Paul here? What is it that we can kind of glean from him? And I, I think that we can look at how Paul addresses this group of non-believers, these group of philosophers, and I think that we can learn how we ourselves can engage in those kind of conversations. But before we get into that, the, the first thing that I think we need is, is kind of an observation that I, that I find uh, regarding Paul and his desire to even want to enter and want to even engage in those conversations. And it's found in verse 16. It says in verse 16 that Paul was greatly distressed. That's the very first thing it says when it comes to this passage. It says Paul was greatly distressed, which means that he was deeply troubled. What was he troubled by? What was Paul troubled by? By all the idols that he saw that people were putting their hope and their faith in. That greatly distressed him. How people were willing to give everything they had for this, this false sense of, of, of hope and this false sense of faith. And he comes into the city and he looks around and he sees all these people. And he goes, oh my gosh, what are they doing? Don't they see? I mean, this is, this is horrible. He was greatly distressed. Which brings to me to the observation of this. Paul was moved. Paul was distressed by the fact that there were people that didn't know and didn't have a relationship with God. That's what motivated him to engage in those conversations. That's what caused him to want to engage in these kinds of conversations. And so I have to ask us the same question. Are we moved by the fact that there are people that do not have a relationship with God? Are we moved by that? Are we distressed by that? Are we bothered by that? Are we deeply troubled by that? That there are people around us, every single day around us, who do not have a relationship with God. And without sounding like a, a fire and brimstone preacher, here's another way of putting it very bluntly. Are we distressed by the fact that people are going to hell? Plain and simple. Are we distressed by the fact that when people, there is spiritual life and death every single day. When we engage people, when we're around people, and the fact is that there are people that don't have a relationship with God, and that absolutely distressed Paul. And he was moved by that. He was moved by that. And it, want, it caused him to want to engage. What's interesting is I don't think it's any different today than in Paul's day. What would Paul think today if he walked into America? Would Paul be distressed? Or would Paul be, ah, they got it right. This place, they got it right. I don't have to worry about America. I don't have to worry about Springfield, Missouri. This place, they got it right. I think Paul would be equally distressed in our day and time. I thought about that. I thought, you know, the, the altars we build and the, and the temples we build and the things like that, no, they're not made of stone. 
And maybe they don't say unknown God on them. But look how we magnify sports figures. I love sports, so don't hear me say that. I love sports. I love watching sports. But $25, $30 million contracts for a 10-year deal. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, look at the praise and, and look at the, how we idolize athletes. We have this conversation in our small group all the time, right, Andy, about institutions. I think it's interesting when you look at the payroll of, of many of our college institutions, how you'll find the highest paid person in the institution is a football or a basketball coach. Again, I love sports. I'm not saying coaches shouldn't be paid. So if you're a coach out there, I'm not saying that at all. I love coaches. I know you guys, you guys have an opportunity to speak into the lives of young men and women. I get it. But come on. Come on. What about technology? We are so, so far better off in today's world. I get it because of technology. I know there's so many things that are so good because of technology. What about our phones? What about our tablets? What about our electronic devices, our Xboxes and our Playstations that we just devote so much time to? We can throw social media in there if we want to. They can become idols. They can become altars. What about our careers? Hey, I know we need to work. We just spent five weeks talking about how God created us to work, right? But our careers can become our idols, right? Materialism. I mean, we could just go on and on and on and on. Sex. I mean, look at the sex industry in the United States. It's growing and it's continuing to grow. It's bigger than it's ever been before. I mean, we could go on and on and on. And Paul, Paul, seeing that people were spiritually lost, he was greatly distressed. They were blinded by things that they were putting their hope and their faith in that were false. Trapped in a pagan culture. And it distressed him. It deeply, deeply troubled this. And because of this, he looked for ways to share about Jesus. And that is why he went to the synagogues. That is why he went to the marketplaces. That's why he was willing to go to the Areopagus and have conversations with, these most, with the most intelligent minds of that day and time. That's why he was willing to do that for a shot, for an opportunity to engage in a conversation. And again, it begs the question of us. Does the fact that people are lost, the fact that there are people who do not have a relationship with God move us? move us? And does it cause us to look for opportunities to share and engage in the gospel? Are we willing to go into our synagogues? Are we willing to go into our own marketplaces, our own arenas of life, our jobs, our homes, our neighborhoods? Are we willing to go in there and hang out and have conversations with those that need to know Jesus? I know it can be frightening. I know it can be frightening. And it can be scary, and it can be intimidating, but we have to decide. Are we going to be intimidated? Are we going to live on the side of fear? Or are we going to be willing to roll up our sleeves and go in and say, you know what, I'm going to put some fear aside for just a moment and engage in a conversation with someone about God. Now, that's what fueled Paul. That's what fueled him. That's what distressed him. So now we get to look at how he did it. 
because this is something I think we can learn from. This is something that we can learn from. We can, lead, we can follow Paul's example. And, and the first thing he did is he found common ground with these men and women and these philosophers. And remember, Paul didn't come in and start talking to them about Jewish law. He didn't, start, he didn't walk in and start talking to them about the, the Old Testament law and scripture. Because you know what? He figured they probably already debated that. They probably already kind of in their own minds talked about that, debated that, and, 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 uh, and kind of, you know, just kind of pushed that aside. So he didn't go in and he started talking to them about Scripture. He didn't say, that, well, the Bible says, because you know what? The Bible wasn't even written at that point, right? I mean, so he didn't go in and try to talk to them about Scripture. He began his case with something they understood. Look at verse 22. It says, Paul stood up in the meeting place of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious. I see that you are religious, for I've walked around and looked very carefully at the objects you worship. Listen, you're religious, I'm religious. Let's talk about God's. Let's talk about God's. I understand. I can see your religious. I can see the, the God. I can see the, the temple to Athena, the, the God of wisdom. I can see your, your altar you made to the goddess of Nike, of, of uh, you know, Michael Jordan, of strength and speed. I can see the, the God of uh, the, the temple you made to Apollo, the God of, of music and art. I can see all those things. You're religious. So am I. So am I. So let's talk. He had walked around. He'd seen those things. And then he says, you know what? You even have this thing over here, this just-in-case God altar, in case another one shows up that you don't know about, right? He said, I found an altar with this inscription, unknown God. So his entry point to them was engaging them in a conversation that was something they understood and something they had common ground with. He emphasizes the point, and Paul understood this, that there is something inside each of us with a desire to worship. There is something within each of us with a desire to be religious, I mean, God created us to worship, didn't he? He created us to worship him and know him. But it's because of sin that that has become corrupt. But the remnants of that are still in every single one of us. Every single one of us, believer, non-believer, have a desire to worship and have a desire to be religious and put our faith and our trust. We all desire to have hope in something, to grab onto something, don't we? And Paul understood that. And that was the common ground that he started with. And so for us, I ask, what's our common ground with people that are around us? It could be something as simple as, you know what? They've gone through the same thing you've gone through. I've experienced the same thing you've experienced. I've made the same mistakes you've made. Let's talk about that. I've had the same questions that you had once in life. Let's sit down. Let's talk about that. You know what? Our kids play on the same baseball team or same soccer team. It's, a, it's fun, but it's, it's kind of grueling. Let's talk about that. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can find in common with people. And Paul said, you know what? We're going to start with something they understand. I'm going to find some common ground with people. That's why we talk about finding ways of sharing our story, isn't it? To share what God has done in our lives. It is uncanny to me how God places people in our lives over and over, going through the th same things that we have experienced or, have, or, or we have experienced the same things that they're going through, correct? I mean, it is uncanny how that happens. And by the way, this is not an excuse to not know the Bible. I read an incredible commentary on, on this actual verse, verse 22. And I want to read this to you because this is powerful. It says, listen, we, need, we all need to be prepared to know the Bible and how it applies to real life. Okay, This applies to real life. Not that we should wait till we know enough. 
Okay? Not that we think we have to wait to know enough, but, but use what we know and always look to grow more. So as we engage in conversations, we look to find commonality with people, we have to think about what we know, what the Bible says, what we do know, and look for opportunities to share that. We'll never know enough, probably, right? We'll never know enough, so we should not engage because we don't think we know enough, but we should continue to grow. We should look for common ground, and God is wanting us to continually prepare as he gives us those conversations to engage in. So that's the first thing that I see Paul did, is he found some common ground. Next, he does this. After he finds common ground, he gets to the core. He gets a little bit to the core of the message that he wants to present. And he starts talking about the one true God is much bigger than any idols that they could ever have or contain. And look at verse 24 through 29, just to quickly look at that again. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and then everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. One of the primary characteristics, I think, of other religions is that they have the ability to reduce God, their God. In other words, their God be, is able to be reduced to something that they can explain, that they can manipulate in some, in some way to fit them the best that they can fit them. And Paul's saying, listen, he's proclaiming that the real God, the one true God, he is so big he can't be explained. The God I'm talking to you about, he can't fit in any of your temples. He doesn't need any of your stuff. The God I'm talking about, he can't be reduced to something that can totally be explained. And I get it. That's frustrating for us as human beings. I get that that is frustrating for us. And it leaves us with questions sometimes that we can't answer. And we want to be able to explain because you know what? We always want to be able to explain everything. But God is infinitely wise, the Bible says. I read a quote. It said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. Think about that. If God were small enough to be understood, we wouldn't need to worship that God because we could explain it, right? Our God, my God, your God is gonna baffle us sometimes. That's the reality of it. He's gonna baffle us sometimes. He's certainly not a God that's a means to an end. In other words, I'm not gonna worship this God here so that I can have more prosperity. I'm not gonna worship my God over here so that I can have more pleasurable life. That's not how God works. He has his own reward, doesn't he? A bigger reward than anything like that. And he cannot be explained. And Paul, once he found common ground, once he was able to get to their level where they could understood, where they understood where he was coming from, he says, listen, I'm going to proclaim to you the greatness of my God. And this God, he can't be explained. Think back to your own life. Think back to your own life. Have you experienced God in his goodness, in his greatness? Are there things that, you can sit there and go, holy cow, my life is so much different because of God. My life would never be here if it weren't for God. That's God's greatness. That's God's greatness working its way in your life. 
And, and once we find common ground, then sometimes, again, it's about sharing our story. It's about sharing the things that God has done in our lives and how he has changed us and moved in us and the things that we've seen him accomplish in our life. That is sharing about and proclaiming the greatness of God. And then the last thing he does is he goes where Paul always goes and he points them to a very specific area. He points them to Christ and the resurrection. Now, here's the deal. I think this is where we get wigged out a little bit. This is where we fail a lot of times. We're able to share our story. We're able to find that common ground a lot of times because of the things we've experienced. We're able to, to share what happened in our life. And then we have to take that next step. And that next step is, stare, is scary because really the reality of it is if we don't go to the next step, we have to point people to Jesus. We have to point people to Jesus and who the person he is. We have to point to him because that's where salvation is found. I mean, God sent his son into the world to die on a cross, a horrible death, put him in a tomb. Death could not overcome him. He rose again. That's the gospel. And we have to be willing to point people to the gospel. The gospel and, and what Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection is the greatness of God displayed the most. It is displayed the most. And we have to be able to not just find common ground. We have to not just be able to, to talk about the goodness and the greatness of God in our life. We have to point them to Jesus. We have to point them to Jesus. Now, that's not always the popular way to go, is it? And that's a lot of times what we struggle with. Because we fear, that's where we fear rejection. That's where we fear, we fear we're going to get the pushback. Just like Paul experienced. Look what happened to Paul in verse 32. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, yeah, maybe we want, maybe want to hear more on this subject. At that, Paul left the city council. So as soon as he said, listen, the greatness of God, they're like, yeah, we get you. We're, we're following you. And then he says, but let me tell you about Jesus. And let me tell you about the resurrection of Jesus, because that's proof that Jesus is who he was. And they went, ooh, now time out. You lost us right there. You lost us right there. You know, dead men don't come alive again. So if we have to buy into that, to this new teaching, you know, we'll just kind of stay with what we know, but we really don't know. You know, we'll just kind of stay here because that's kind of radical. And you know what? Not for us. And at that point, some said, you know what? We're done with it. And, they, and, and, and some said, yeah, maybe you want to hear a little bit more. But then it says at that Paul left the city council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Now, critical here on the understanding of the words, because it says some of them became followers of Paul and believed, which means that they didn't leave their believers. They left their following Paul, and Paul probably discipled them at some point and then became believers. So get this, Paul one of the greatest preachers of all time, wrote how many books in the New Testament? Tons of books in the New Testament, right? He is considered one of the greatest uh, people to speak in the New Testament that we learned from. He had an opportunity to speak to hundreds, if not more than that, people on this grand stage, some of the most intelligent minds that ever were to live right there. Not one person walked away changed. Think about that. Not one person walked away saved. Did that stop Paul? 
No way. No way. And so what I'm saying is that, listen, if Paul can speak to that many people and experience rejection from that many people, so can we. And you know what? The, Jesus even said, when people, when you say, speak my name, people are going to say, yeah, they're going to reject it. That's the reality of it. But it can't stop us from wanting to engage in those conversations. Paul never stopped talking about the greatness of God and who he was. Paul never stopped talking about who Jesus Christ was because he was distressed that people did not have a relationship with God. And so I just ask you again today as we close, does it bother you that people don't have a relationship with God? Or are we just kind of satisfied with our Christian life? We come to church, we read the Bible, we learn, we grow ourselves, we go to our small group. Whatever people want to believe is what they want to believe. You know, it is what it is. Or are we distressed? Are we concerned about the, the fact that there are people around us? Maybe people under your own, own roof at home. People that you work with every single day. Maybe you share a cubicle with every single day. that are lost and don't have a relationship with God. And are we willing because of that to engage and find some common ground? Talk about the greatness of God, but not stop there. Not stop there and point them to the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. Thank you, God, that you pursued us. Thank you, God, that you created a way for us to have relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. God, would you alight a passion in us, every single one of us, God, to be aware of, keenly aware of what's going on around us. May we not fear engaging in conversation. May we be willing to walk into our culture, educate ourselves around our culture, and be willing to engage in conversations with people. Would you use us, God, to make a difference in our homes, in our workplaces, in our city, Thank you, God, for who you are. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Northridge Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about Northridge Church, you can find us online at mynorthbridge.org.